I really hope we've moved away from having great ideas in the North and taking them down as models that other education systems should follow because we think it's the best way. I hope we've moved sufficiently away from that so that instead you talk to local people, government officers, school head teachers, parents, and ask them what are the problems they're facing? What are the challenges they're facing on a daily basis? The Amazon International Podcast Chasing Impact is dedicated to all leaders out there who are busy building a better world. We are here because we know that building a better world is not only necessary, but possible. That pushing our business or nonprofit organization to the next level means acting with purpose over short-term goals. That success means not simply chasing the next grand donation or quarterly profit target, but chasing impact. Joining us today is Samantha Ross, the International Programme Director at Link Education, as we discuss the very important International Day of Education. Hi, Samantha, and welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining. I would like to get this conversation started by asking you to give an overview of Link Education, what exactly it is that you do and what your mission is. Sure. So we would consider ourselves quite a small, kind of a a large, small (laughs) NGO international NGO. So we have four offices, um, three offices in Africa, and one small team working out of UK too. We support education. We support education systems within our three target countries, which are Ethiopia, Uganda, and Malawi. And we work very closely with governments, with communities, and with schools to support quality sustainable education systems. And we do that around, we've got like five strategic goals that we have with LINK, and they are supporting education systems or strengthening education systems, uh, transforming girls' education. So we have a real focus on marginalized groups and girls are a big part of that group. We support climate change and building schools' resilience to climate events that may be happening in the countries we work in. We support education in emergencies. And we support community voice and accountability. And all of our work encompasses those five goals because we believe those together will really strengthen the system for long-term embedded change within these countries that we work in. Our program designs with government when and if funding becomes available. We'd be working with government to design projects. And really importantly, we bring communities into that discussion as well. So that any interventions that we're supporting, government officers are either delivering the intervention or monitoring the intervention, helping us adapt it so that it's better. And communities are there as well to support any interventions that we might be delivering. And we can talk about actually actual examples later on to to bring that more to life. Absolutely. I think let's go right ahead with that. You've mentioned a lot of great initiatives that you're running. Um, Maybe to give a a bigger picture, if you could speak about one specific project. The programme that we've just really successfully finished in Malawi, actually, was called Team Girl Malawi. It was funded by FCDO and it was part of the Leave No Girl Behind portfolio, which is part of the Big Girls Education Challenge. And we led that project in Malawi with another five organizations who were sorry fish for change so they they supported girls clubs and sexual reproductive health and rights elements of that program 
link in Malawi were, were looking at the foundational learning. So literacy, numeracy, local language, Chichewa, and life skills. We work with Kumo, who are a local kind of village savings and loans organization. So they were supporting financial literacy and business skills. We work with Supreme Sanitary Pads, who give training on making reusable sanitary pads, but also good, strong tailoring skills that learners can use for making school uniforms or any other needs that might be within the community. And we work with CGA technologies that helped us monitor the program. The program was targeted at children who had either been to school but dropped out before Standard 4, so had never really gained those foundational uh, literacy and numeracy skills, and children who had never been to school at all. And it was targeting the older age groups. It was looking at children between the ages of 10 to 18, 19, with a focus on girls, but really looking beyond that as well. So looking at girls and the challenges they specifically face. So for example, forced or early marriage, pregnancy, um, childbirth, or generally not being allowed to be educated because it's a priority when families are struggling for money, school does still cost, they would generally send the boys. So the prioritization issue. But also orphans, children who are heads of households, children who live geographically a long way from their village center and children with disabilities. I think we had about 13% of our target group had a disability. And in the in the countries we operate in, especially in Malawi, those children are often seen as not being appropriate for school. Like school is not for them. So we did a lot of work with communities on identifying who these marginalized groups were and sharing with communities why it's important for these children to have um, or youth to have an education. We then worked with the community to also identify where these children could access a learning space. So it couldn't be in mainstream school because that was that was happening already for the children who were attending school. So it had to be an alternative space. It had to be a space that was safe. It had to be in a space that was accessible. Adapting the government program for marginalized children so that the program could be more inclusive. We trained the facilitators to deliver the four subjects, so English, maths, Chichewa, and uh, livelihoods or life skills. We ensured the curriculum was really accessible and that the curriculum included a lot of real-life relevant examples so that the children would learn in the classroom their foundational literacy and numeracy skills, but could then immediately take those skills and use them in their real-life environment, so at the market or at the health center or or whatever it might be. It was a two-year complementary basic education program. And once they had graduated from that, they could then either go back to primary school and they would go into standard five and then they could continue their education in primary school. And that was more appropriate and chosen more often by the younger cohort of learners If they were above 16, they could then access the vocational training, which is the tailoring, and then they could then do the business skills and entrepreneurship skills as well with the other partner. So there's a really nice graduation journey for the learners who would gain their their literacy and numeracy skills, and then at the same time, attend girls clubs and gain their social emotional learning skills or non-cognitive skills and sexual reproductive health and rights. So those worked in parallel, and then they could go on to their more vocational skills, entrepreneurship skills, if they 
wanted to. And we supported about six, over 6,000 children. And we've just had our end line and it showed that the graduates that went through our program were achieving 79% learning gains in literacy and numeracy, which is a fantastic level, especially when you compare it with the standard four national average. Our 79% of our learners achieved that level compared to a national average of 13%. So it really shows that our program was delivering really strong outcomes for the graduates. Absolutely. And I, I guess in line with that, um, 13%, which is low, we could bring it back to um, why is the International Day of Education so important for people to recognise? Yeah, so education is underfunded. I was trying to think, why is education routinely underfunded when our children spend more time in their places of learning than within in their families during these really formative years when they're growing up? And families, parents, carers put great trust in the education institutions that they're providing the quality of education that our children need in order to continue in life. And this is globally, not just in the countries that we support. And we just really trust that these institutions are doing the right thing for our children. And yet often, for many reasons, these institutions are not able to provide the quality education that we're expecting or wanting for our children. And I think this International Day of Education is so important because it makes us stop and think, oh, what is happening? What, what is my child doing every day at school? Are they learning the skills they need to, to tackle whatever life is going to throw at them? And if they're not, what do I need to do as a parent? What does the school need to do? What does the government need to do? Uh, and this day helps us, I think, to just take a step back and think about what is the role of education? And it is the government or the, the whoever's providing that education, is it providing it at the right level that I would expect? And if it's not, I should be doing something about it. So it's that kind of reminder that we need to question the quality of education that our children are receiving because education is everything. Education gives us opportunities. It gives us options in life. It's not just the academic skills that education provides, but it enables us to then go on to make self and healthy choices. It enables people to be independent. It enables people to realize their rights. So that could be around a fair and just livelihood, whatever that livelihood might be. And I think really importantly, in the kind of current state of the world, it gives people the knowledge, maybe the confidence, the strength to adapt to things like climate events and to give them the skills to cope in crises. And those two things are happening, unfortunately. Going from your point that education is everything, I'd like us to face some facts, as you will. Last year, it was said that only 3% of humanitarian funds go to education in emergency contexts. Um, this is a far cry from the 10% that is demanded by the Global Campaign for Education. We're a year on now. How has the situation evolved and have there been notable changes in fund allocation? I think there is change. I think it's very slow in coming and far too slow because every month that there's a delay, that's a cohort of children who are missing out on really vital education. 
And then this cohort of children are expected to catch up and do some kind of rapid accelerated learning program. And it's generally the children that are expected to do this and the teachers and the institutions that are expected to learn in these accelerated learning environments are the ones who are potentially also suffering from trauma. So it could be a trauma from a a war, it could be trauma from a, a storm or a flood, you know, anything. So it's the ones that are most vulnerable who are then expected to catch up really quickly in a resource constrained environment. So they're kind of being hit three times by stuff that's going on around them, yet still expected to succeed. So it's really, really challenging. So funding institutions need to get funding out to the organizations that can make a change much more quickly than they are at the moment. Scottish government, we've got funding from Scottish government for some climate change work, which is great. But we wrote the proposal over a year ago, and we're still not yet delivering. So you have this, even when the funding becomes available, you still have this, these big delays in approving proposals and then getting budgets approved and then making changes because everything has to be reviewed and changed and adapted. And meanwhile, there's people, there's children who are still missing out on education, maybe because, for example, in Malawi, a storm has come through and blown the roof of the school or a river has flooded and the, the bridge is gone and children cannot now physically get to school. While we have all these delays in government bodies as, as papers are moving from one from one department to the next, that's another day of school that a child has missed and another day and another day. And that doesn't even account for the days that that child may be missing because if it's a girl, um, she may have a period and she may not have sanitary protection. If it's the harvesting period, the children might have to go out to harvest the crops because they need to sell them in order to have food on the table. So there's real life that is still happening to these children uh, while papers are being shuffled in often northern um, government department offices and, and delays to funding is a result. And from that, how do you feel about 2024 and beyond that? How, how do you envision the future of education? I think people who work in development have to be optimists, have to be glass half full people. Otherwise, it'd be really hard <laughs> to do our job. Um, so, of course, it's going to improve. <laughs> of course, funding will come online much quicker. And funding, importantly, will go to the right people. So I think there's been a trend of funding going to these big for-profit organizations, which, yes, can deliver and get results, but have very high overheads. I think there is a move to shifting the power and to localization. And if it can be done properly, and there's lots of issues around risk, when funding goes directly to local organizations, but I think it can be done and I think it can be done in an efficient and safe way. If funding can go more directly to local organizations, I think that will speed up support, especially for marginalized groups. If funding goes to local organizations, you're building capacity, you're building, they often work with communities, you're embedding and empowering the communities to continue the work once the funding runs out because the skills have been embedded within those systems. So it's a much more appropriate way, I think, of supporting these communities and education systems going forward. I think funding is looking a lot, well, more recently, it's looking to early childhood development. So I think there's been lots of 
I think finally, kind of the research has caught up with what we knew already, that the the foundations are really important. And the earlier you can support children, not necessarily with academic skills, but skills around learning how to learn and learning through play, I think more funding to that area is really important. And that, that is happening. I think funding to the vocational side of education is really important. And I think that's happening as well. So skills for the world of work. And again, I think that's a global shift as well as northern curricula, northern education systems look at how their curricula prepares children for the world of work. That also is very relevant in the countries that we work in as well. And potentially there will continue to be, but I hope not quite so much, the move towards funding for technology and the thinking that technology is the answer. Um, there was a fantastic, one of the UNESCO gender education monitoring reports that came out last year all around technology and who does it benefit. And I'm going to <laughs> summarize quite a lot here. It's a very fat report, but basically it was saying that technology is really benefiting the tech companies and not the learners. Research is catching up to show that throwing um, an iPad at children is not going to improve education or the educational outcomes. Technology does have a role. It has a role in collecting and analyzing data and feeding back that data to people who need to see it and use it. I think it can play a great role in teacher training and you know, beyond education, but connected to education, it can play a, a good role in in safeguarding and doing training around child rights and child protection and supporting case management. I think it's great for that kind of thing. I don't think providing a seven-year-old with an iPad supports their learning. I think we still need a teacher in front of them. We still need paper, pencil, or drawing the sand or, or tactile resources or whatever it is. So I don't think technology is the answer. And I hope that I hope that funders recognize that and think more about how it can be used in an appropriate way. So, for example, teacher training and not just handing out iPads to, to kids. I don't, think that's, I don't think that's the right way to go. And I hope 2024 sees funding move away from that. And there is funding looking at climate change. I still think we need to see education and climate change better linked. And COP28 did try and do that a little bit. And when I say climate change and education be more linked, there is obviously a role for the curricula to be adapted so that climate adaptations, climate mitigation, understanding what climate change is, that can be embedded across the curriculum. I mean, I think people will be doing that already or have done that already. But I also see the environment and climate being be embedded across the whole school experience. And what I mean by that is not just within the curriculum, but within the whole whole school day. So for example, you could have a really beautiful compound that's full of trees and plants that are there to support mental health, but also there to combat flooding, for example. A school compound that really works for the school and then it provides fruits and vegetables that the children can can eat, but also could be sold to raise money for the school, but also work very closely with the community so that all the indigenous knowledge there is on how people used to farm or grow trees 
all that local knowledge can be brought into the school and children can learn that or relearn that. Um, Teachers can learn from community members and you can have a school compound that is built for resilience. So when these communities and schools do face climate events, which they will do going forward more and more frequently, they have a resilient school structure that can remain open when climate events happen. So children can still benefit from education and it's not being stopped because of a flood or a storm or whatever event that they're coping with. And I think there needs to be a realisation from funders that that kind of long-term greening of the school should be funded very soon (laughs) so that these schools can become more resilient in the face of these climate events. That was all very insightful and I think a good time to wrap up. Um, Maybe a final question of, uh, is there anything else that we haven't spoken about that you'd like to share? I guess I think going forward, I hope that more organisations and more funders really ensure that the work they're doing is embedded within government education systems. I really hope we've moved away from having great ideas in the North and taking them down as models that other education systems should follow because we think it's the best way. I hope we've moved sufficiently away from that so that instead you talk to local people, government officers, school head teachers, parents, and ask them what are the problems they're facing? What are the challenges they're facing on a daily basis? What do they think their education systems need? What are their education systems lacking? We can take that information to develop with these people on the ground who are experiencing, you know, have first-hand experience of what's going on, develop programs that can really meet those needs and that funders recognize that process, that the ideas for the program have come from people on the ground who are facing the challenges. Therefore, if you're able to fund this, then those people will directly benefit. This is not a program that's being written by somebody sitting at their desk in Edinburgh. It's a program that's that's developed from an actual need on the ground. And I, I do hope that this localization, shifting the power agenda that the Global North actually is still has now will actually move to really make good strides forward for these local communities you know and the the hope is that we wouldn't need to have organizations like link in edinburgh because the resources and and the capacity and the knowledge is already there in the countries that we support so i i hope that that localization gender is still really pushed forward by northern funders Um, and Northern Research Institutions and any other analysts are looking at how funding for development is delivered, I hope that they really look at organisations that are built from the grassroots and think of ways of supporting those organisations to really develop good programming for their communities. Great. I think we're hitting the 30-minute mark on the dot. Uh, So I want to thank you so much, Samantha, for your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the MZN International Podcast, Chasing Impact. We hope this episode inspired or challenged you to do good better. Subscribe to our podcast for more interviews with thought leaders who are revolutionizing the nonprofit and private sectors. 
For more information about MZN International, visit our website, www.mzninternational.com. Or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn to find out more about our free webinars and inside articles. Thanks again, and we look forward to having you with us next time. Thank you.